Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 18, recorded on April 11th. It's a Google Next Next level recap. That good? Yeah, I thought you were going to get right into it. That's fine. Oh, I could have. I just thought we, you... we normally do the round of applause because it's the end of the show, but I guess it's, since it's the beginning of the show, I didn't. Yeah, know I wasn't ready that. for that. I, sorry, I, I wasn't prepared. <laughs> Welcome, guys. It's been a busy, crazy week here in San Francisco with Google Next uh, wrapping up today uh, with two fantastic keynotes on Tuesday and Wednesday. A ton of vendors, 35,000 new friends on the show floor and in the sessions. It's been busy. So the first order of business, of course, is the draft from last week. And so we, uh, we actually have an interesting uh, challenge that's come up out of the draft, which is that we believe we are in a three-way tie. But there's a discrepancy. You that, believe we're in a three-way yeah. tie. <laughs> yes, John, Jonathan, <laughs> we'd like to go to our guest tonight, which is Ryan Lucas. Ryan, you want to say Hello. Hello. Uh, who we mentioned last week was sort of jokingly would be our tiebreaker if we were not in agreement, but uh, that very quickly realized we would need him. Uh, so he is here to hear Jonathan's case and be judge, jury, and executioner on if Jonathan gets the winning point here or not. So Jonathan, I will let you present your case. Well, I went back through the transcript of the keynote from um, day two, Wednesday, and I heard the words, and I quote, Eventually. <laughs> ah, I see the, uh, the attorney is well prepared. <laughs> yeah, so while he's finding his evidence here, we can... Uh, so the, basically, I nailed uh, Enterprise will be a big part of the show, uh, being mentioned four times on stage by Thomas or his guests. I nailed that within the first 20 minutes of the first day keynote, and it was very clear throughout the whole session that Enterprise was their main focus. Uh, Peter nailed uh, hybrid service mesh with Istio, uh, which was added into the announcement we'll talk about a little bit later around Athenos. Uh, and then Jonathan nailed collaboration tools with what looks like a potential Slack type chat service inside Gmail. So, you know, it was a real, real nice win there by Jonathan on day two that we thought he was going to come out of this with a goose egg. So are you ready to present your case now, Jonathan? No. <laughs> well, <laughs> the judge might might throw this case out on a lack of technical evidence. Well, you know, we we said that the rules were going to be that had to be mentioned in a keynote, and what I said was additional runtime support for functions. And while it wasn't called out as in, hey, we now support PHP, we now support Node, we now support um, Python, it was mentioned in the context of Cloud Run. Defines the speed and ease of use of serverless computing of functions with the flexibility and portability of containers. So you can use any language in any runtime in uh, cloud functions. I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll give uh, Ryan, uh, we'll let you deliberate and make your judgment call it on this. It was said on stage. I, uh, you know, like, I, I do think that there's a, there's a case for all of these things. Um, I mean, on one side of it, I'm sort of like, you can give it to him because then at least we have a winner out of this draft versus the three-way tie. But on the other side, on the principle of it, I'm, I'm totally opposed. <laughs> well, I think, you know, like for me, it's, it's a lot about the predictions and, and how you guys did. Like uh, I'm, I'm enterprise mentioned four times. Like I think that's a, that was a gimme going into here. Google is clearly trying to make a play for the enterprise space to catch up to their competitors. And so, of course, they're going to lead on an enterprise heavy um, message there. 
And the collaboration tools is the other one where I'm like, eh, is it? They're introducing chat into their mail thing? Like, yeah. The very first words that came out of my mouth when we did the draft was a new messaging system. And then Justin's like, a messaging system? At the cloud conference? <laughs> no, but my, it was, I was also clarifying, are you talking about like a Kafka <laughs> pub sub type product, which they already had, or are you talking about a chat service? But yes, I, mm. I was questioning that as well. But then I, I, one thing I, I had completely forgotten about with Google is that they have a whole product called G Suite <laughs> that's going to be part of this conference. And so while I was making fun of you horrifically last week, uh, it was it was a bad taste on my part because I was completely forgetting about G Suite because it's just not something I really think about with Amazon, uh, unfortunately. I, I'll, do, I'll do your deal. If you give me new languages for functions, I will give up messaging as a point because it's just an extension to Hangouts, which is an existing product. So I don't know that that really counts. So that was really my point on it. Like I was like, is this really a new messaging service? Not really. It's sort of an integration with their Hangouts and into their mail service, which are both things that already exist and still questionable in what they're trying to do with that with that platform. Yeah, that is that is not new. Yeah, I can see the point on uh, Hangouts. What's it called? Hangouts Meet or something? It's Hangouts Chat in Gmail is what they're doing. All right, you get functions. You don't get collaboration tools. All right, well, I'm happy. All right, so then we're still at a three-way tie. So no, we're not. Perfect. Honorable mention, tiebreak goes to no, Peter. No, 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 we didn't. We, <laughs> we, were very, we were very clear that honorable mentions get no points. They're just an honorable mention. So uh, it is a three-way tie, unfortunately. Right, but you, you right. nailed that better Microsoft support pretty well in the keynote as well. The good news, Peter, is that you still win because the the amount of which you nailed your prediction on the hybrid service mesh sets it, you know, head and shoulders above the best. Not only did they they announce exactly that, they, they made exactly the play that you were talking about in your prediction. So you still win. But now I now so what I what I found out because uh, I was like, Oh, this Anthos thing sounds really cool. And then I was talking to a Google customer, and he's like, Oh yeah, they announced that last year as a beta at the keynote and now this is just them rebranding it from gscp to google anthos and they're GAing it so technically that would disqualify that call from the keynote you know from the draft anyways because it's a pretty known product but i disagree that they already announced it because what they announced previously was a service mesh like project not something that was that was binding specifically binding together your on-prem and cloud workloads. So I agree, and so I that's why I'm totally not arguing about the Istio thing because that was not mentioned last year. But the concept of like a major GKE announcement that would potentially be on-premise, which was kind of what he had as his first prediction, technically wasn't a valid draft pick by the rules. But we'll oh. let it go because we're all new to this. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, for the next time, you all have to cheat more and make it a lot harder for me. Well, I think, I think next yeah, time we'll have a much better. I, I have a much better idea of what they're going to be doing and kind of moving forward for next year. So I, I think, you know, if we were doing the same draft for AWS, I think it would be a much different conversation uh, or even Azure because they're both more well known to all of us uh, than Google, which I think is still pretty new to everyone, maybe the, but Peter. So I think it's still new to Google, to be fair. <laughs> that, that's true. Well, let's uh, let's move on from the draft. But, but, but uh, congratulations to all three of us for at least getting one thing right. Yeah. So our, our crystal balls were a little bit were good, and then I, I do give you props, Peter, on that honorable mention. That was a, a really nice call. So I think I actually said a cloud SQL version of MS SQL Server. You may have done. But if you put that in your draft <laughs> picks, you would have had two points and you would have won this whole thing. But you put it as honorable mention. So I know. My bad. Yeah, I put a lot of thought into why the other predictions I made didn't come true. 
Oh, I did too. The blockchain thing makes no sense because I googled Ethereum Kubernetes and like the, the first 50 things in the list is this is how you run Ethereum in Kubernetes. Like you can literally terraform the thing in 10 minutes and deploy it on GCP anyway. So why would they run that as a service? Who cares? Yeah, that's exactly like why, why do, what is Google's incentive to running this service? Like who, who are their customers going to be? How do they monetize it? Like what's, what's the return on investment for them there? And I think that's where it gets a little fuzzy. Yes, it's something they could do, but is it actually valuable for them to do? I don't know. Yeah. Well, the, the thing I realized out of this conference is that they are so far behind on primitives that to be expecting any higher level services at this point is probably unfair. And so what blockchain as a service might be something they would do eventually just to make it easier for people than running a Kubernetes cluster. There's so much other stuff for them to do first that it doesn't make sense for them to do something that's so niche. That was kind of my big takeaway from the whole conference is that, you know, being third into this market is advantageous for a lot of reasons, but it's also means you're also the farthest behind of everybody else. And so you shouldn't expect the same level of feature delivery, the same level of quality in what they're delivering right now as Amazon or an Azure service would be. I was super surprised that there was no ARM support. I mean, Windows runs an ARM. Chromos runs an ARM. Every Android phone pretty much runs an ARM. And in fact, Google were working with Qualcomm a couple of years ago on the Qualcomm ARM server cores. Seemed like a safe bet, but um... I think it comes back to them still being new. If you think about, you know, how how much effort it takes to spin up new regions, new data centers, and then how to manage all that hardware, and then to have a separate RMA process, a separate classification, you know, separate SKUs for different hardware, and on the actual infrastructure level, it actually introduces a lot of complexity to support a different type of machine. And so it makes a lot of sense if you're just trying to expand and gain market shares to simplify your efforts and only support one type. When they first announced this, like back in 2006, that they were working with Qualcomm, uh, or it was leaked, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't announced officially. Uh, like right after that came the Intel Skylake CPUs. And I'm kind of wondering if they just used that announcement as a, as leverage to, for pricing for Intel because Google Cloud were the first people to have the, um, the Skylake CPUs. And it makes sense because those things, they have like amazing floating point performance, which is what Google need for machine learning. I'm going to say they've got to have some ARM stuff, but maybe they just don't expose it publicly. I think it's maybe something that's still in the roadmap. It goes back to the primitives, and I, I just don't think it's their priority right now. Their priority is to catch up as fast as possible. And, and again, ARM is still pretty niche. And so... Is it something that enterprise customers are going to run to if they announce it today? I don't think the answer to that question is yes. That's the filter I didn't have when I was going through my predictions was that perspective that I think is really helpful to have. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. www.fogops.io slash thecloudpod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Let's talk about just overall general conference thoughts, impressions. Um, this is Thomas Curian's uh, first, you know, real exposure to the world beyond, you know, inter- you know, customer meetings he's been having over the last 10 weeks since he joined Google. I-, I thought he did a fine job on stage. He's a little bit more laid back in his presentation style than I was expecting. I thought he was a little bit more 
rambunctious. And it was really a, a shame because they, they put Sundar up very first thing in the keynote. And he's, he's a fantastic speaker. He's very high energy. You could tell he was excited. And then you kind of went to Thomas and it was like this very big juxtaposition of like this one person is really dynamic and really energetic on stage to a very calm, very thoughtly, you know, thought driven conversationalist. Um, so that was kind of my first initial take. But what about you guys? No, I heard that he didn't use any notes for his entire keynote. He did not use any teleprompter, no notes, no nothing. He stood there and did the entire thing from memory. So, I mean, that's impressive to be as calm and well thought out and time the thing the way he did. His delivery was really good. I mean, is it necessary to do it without notes? No. But it shows that he knows what he's talking about. I actually felt completely opposite. Like, I would- from where I was sitting, at least the first day, I could actually see the teleprompter. So it's it's not like he's doing it completely from memory. Yes, he's not reading from a script like a lot of the other presenters were. But it's more of an improv type of style, which some people are you know more comfortable with. But I think it actually led to a very stilted, awkwardly paced um, format, especially as he was doing like, the, the kind of like conversational dialogue with like a customer that he brought up on stage. It was... It had an awkward pacing. It didn't feel comfortable, and it was sort of felt forced to me. I didn't like it. I wasn't there. Did you watch the video, though? Peter? Absolutely not. I read the notes. <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> why, would I, why would I watch it? One of the things that I felt was really awkward in the keynotes was they paraded out a lot of customers and a lot of partners. And instead of letting them just kind of come out and talk, they did this very interview-style approach to it. Um, in the first day, they did Chase Bank, and they did um, a couple of healthcare companies. I think Philips was the first day, and it was it just it was it was very clearly highly scripted because no PR company or PR team of your company is going to let you just go out onto stage and let Thomas Curry and ask you random questions on stage and not have a pretty good idea what your answer is going to be. It was effective in getting that message out that enterprises are here and they're using Google. It was also not the best foot forward of how to present those customers to the audience, I think. The um, Australian New Zealand Bank was, was kind of interesting because at reInvent, I met a couple of guys who were talking about how, how they were moving to, to AWS. And I guess they're operationally, they're moving to AWS, but for analytics, they're still using Google Cloud. So it's a, an interesting customer to stand up there. I kind of wonder if they were short on customers. Well, I think in general, as, as someone who has a requirement to get customers to agree to talk, on our behalf or or to talk about it, get agreement to talk about our customers. It's definitely not easy. Nobody wants to be that person. So usually, I bet, I mean, it was preemptive when they were getting them as customers that they wanted them to be use cases. And so those are the ones they're going to have up there. The McKesson deal is really, really cool. I mean, they're the largest company nobody's ever heard of, unless you work in healthcare. Their headquarters is in San Francisco, I think, but they've got like a $208 billion revenue. They're fifth or sixth in the Fortune 500. And... Uh, Everybody else on the top 10 is like Walmart, CVS, ExxonMobil, um, Apple. Nobody's heard of McKesson. The thing that was interesting to me, so there was announcements before, we'll get to those in a little bit here, but there was announcements before around you know the new healthcare APIs and then McKesson kind of going all in, not really, they didn't announce all in, but you know strategically partnering sales with Google uh, to be their cloud provider. Uh, and so then you know they had the CTO on stage day two, and it was really interesting to me because it's very clear he, you know, Google is having a very large influence on their culture of their company and how they're doing business. And it, it's interesting to me because I, while if you're a CTO that really understands and, and knows what you need um, and you need that transformation and Google's willing to come bring that to you, 
that's really great. But a lot of CTOs are, would tell Google to get out of the door. You know, if Google came in and said, well, you know, you're not doing things in the Googly way. And so therefore we don't want you to be, you know, our cloud provider using our cloud if you're not doing it the Google way where the, you know, the, the case with McKesson, I think he's probably a very high level CTO level. You know, he's probably not as close to the technology as other people are. And so he, potentially identified that challenge and Google was interesting to him because if they could be more Googly, that's a good win. But how well does that resonate to, re resonate to other CTOs who have a different opinion about how they run their shop? I don't know how well that actually that interview went across to the layman's person. I know for me, I found it to be a very aggressive do it the Google way presentation, which was kind of the opposite of what they've been talking about for the entire keynote, which was, you know, we're going to meet you where you're at. We're going to make the technology that you need. We're going to get you the sales and support that you need to do your business. And then you have this McKesson CTO up there and it's, you know, Google's making us change everything. And that's, that's kind of the opposite of what they were trying to send. I felt in a dictative kind of way that they're making them change things. Or do you think it's the, the Google culture, the idea of the Google culture that's making them change? Well, it wasn't very specific, but it was it's it was an interesting message that, you know, especially with Google's reputation of sort of being kind of bully about how companies do certain processes. And if you're trying to, you know, make up some ground from third place in the hyperscaler world, it's sort of interesting to march into someone's office and be like, well, you have to do it this way to adopt our product. And it did. It wasn't specific, but it was sort of like, yeah, we had a lot. We had a lot of changes that we had to make in order to partner with Google. Like, that's not really what you want to do, is it? There are a couple other interesting things from the keynotes uh, to mention. Um, Thomas Curian talked about privacy. He had a whole slide of, you know, we're not going to spy on your data, or you know, your machine learning models are yours. The data is always yours. We don't want access to your data. Really trying to address some of those privacy concerns. You know, at the moment in the, in the keynote, when it went, went over really well with the audience, there was a lot of applause and all that. But, you know, I, w I wanted to go kind of the next level. Is like, and here's how we're assuring what I just told you is actually going to happen. And it's not just me, Thomas Curry, and telling you privacy is important. It's, it's actually something Google believes in. And we're doing that through third-party auditing with, you know, transparency reporting, something there to really put some teeth into that would have made that a much more compelling thing for me, you know, after I left the keynote. In the keynote, it sounded like this is really great. But then, you know, you start thinking about it, you're like, well, you didn't, you didn't tell me how you're going to guarantee that you're doing those things. And I'm taking your word for it. And, you know, I don't know how much I trust Google yet. And it's sort of this weird juxtaposition we are in this space where, you know, how much do you trust Google? How much do you trust Amazon? How much do you trust Microsoft? And that's kind of an interesting question. And I like the effort. I like that they put it on main stage. I don't think Amazon's ever put that on main stage, that privacy is important to them in that way. I mean, it's in their security controls and their security white papers, but it's not not something they've ever presented on stage like that in a big forum. So I applaud them for that effort. I just wish that there was a little bit more teeth to it. I thought they announced a transparency uh, log, actually. Google or someone else? Oh, maybe it was someone else. <laughs> I thought it was Google. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it may be. I, I, but again, if you had that, why didn't you mention that on stage two? Right, that wasn't on right. the slide. Yeah. I think they had to mention privacy because they're in the middle of this GDPR mess with the EU and they're being fined $58 million. And if they got on stage and they didn't make privacy there, at least one of the top priorities, I don't think it would reflect well because they're seen as somebody who, you know, as a company who have so much money, they don't need to follow the law. And um, I don't think it would work out well for them if they if they continued to uh, to ignore the, the new privacy rules in the EU. As judges, they, they come up with arbitrary fines. Today it's fifty eight million. If they think if they think you're not making the effort you're supposed to, it'll be one hundred fifty eight million, and then it'll be five hundred. So. so it's a good take on it that I hadn't thought about at the time. Um, but yeah, again, it's good to see someone talking about it. 
Uh, it was sort of this weird uh, juxtaposition, though. In the uh, they had a swag store on the conference floor. It's like a bookseller, and they had front and center on one of the tables the Zucked book. And I was like, well, that's that's a little pot calling the kettle black on this one, isn't it? You know, <laughs> putting Zucked front and center as a book that you want to buy at the Google conference when, you know, right after Facebook, the number two is, is probably Google with data privacy. So overall, you know, I think the keynotes were were well received. Uh, I think, you know, the, the production values of the entire event were very high. Um, it's a very nice event. You know, the, the amount of effort Google put into making that a high quality reinvent level venue and, you know, process and registration system and mobile applications. That was all really high quality. Um, the lunch let them down in major ways. It was pretty awful both days. <laughs> Pete Ryan and I were talking about it. But uh, overall, I think the conference uh, was a big success for Google in a lot of ways. Uh, but it does leave me with still with some questions. Is this where I'm supposed to say something? Sure. Yeah, knock yourself out. <laughs> like those awkward gaps, I just assume it's like I missed. They all get cut out. Those all, those all get cut out. It's fine. Oh, okay, we all sound great <laughs> at the end. Do you, do you listen to the show? <laughs> <laughs> I tend to agree. There, the I was really impressed with like the 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 mobile app um, and a lot of the presentation that we saw as far as like the signage and all those stuff, which is you know. I'm, I admire myself on the details. I'm an old technical theater geek, and so I, I sit there and I stare at all the lighting rigs, and, and I, I find it all very impressive. Um, you know, yeah, the food. I, some of that is their subject to the venue. It's not always it's not always a choice, but um, but I think the the real difference between you know say something like reinvent and this was was in the content of the keynotes. I felt that it was light. I I, I feel that they are because they're working on primitives, they don't have enough major announcements. And so they're trying to spin a narrative of we're ready. We're ready for your business. We're ready for your big business, your enterprise business. But then they sort of don't have anything else to to fill out the three days. And it was a you know it was a little bit hard to stomach through the the second keynote because you're like this again? Okay. You know, they're rehashing the same announcement they made the day before and then just parading customers on stage that are all basically saying the same things in very broad strokes. Like, we get it. We know how big businesses like adopt Google. Good job. Typically, when you go to an Amazon keynote of any kind, a summit or the reinvent, um, they're very metrics driven. Right. And so all the quotes are, you know, Amazon saved us, you know, 75 percent on our storage costs. It's. You know, we moved our big data lake from, you know, on-premise to AWS and we improved our processing time by, you know, 13% from, you know, eight second queries to two second queries, right? They're always very metrics driven. They're all very, very tangible technical things that they quote. And they're all on the posters, they're on the billboards, they're on the TVs, you see them um, at the events. And then even in the, the guests that they have on stage, they're very metrics driven. And that's a big part of how they want to do a keynote. Um the Google quotes were all very aspirational, like Google is going to help accelerate our transformation to a more democratic technology center. And you're like, what? What does that even mean? Like, it, it sounds flashy and very marketing, but it doesn't actually have a lot of substance there. Uh, and that was one of the other kind of weird juxtapositions, you know, comparing this to something like reInvent, where, you know, it's it's very clearly a very marketing driven PR positive message that they're trying to drive versus uh, here's the real metrics of how we've helped people change their business. I wasn't excited about anything enough that sitting down at dinner time, I would I'd say, oh, hey, guess what they announced? You know, they didn't announce anything which wowed me to the point where I wanted to talk to my family about it. It was very business orientated, very kind of 
processy and like you say very marketing not not tech oriented at all i was hoping for a much more tech event with many more product announcements and it was i don't know it didn't wow me you know we complain often about reinvents breakout sessions are very basics like oh introduction to iam introduction to ec2 and and you're like, I really want more meat. I want something more full-featured. And Google actually has the opposite problem in their breakout sessions. All their breakout sessions are like machine learning intermediate level. And you have to like know what machine learning is to even have a, a, any sense of what's in that content. Ryan and I are both talking because we're both somewhat new to GCP. We're like, we want we want to go find an IAM, like introduction to IAM on Google. What's that look like? What's How's it different? Or VPCs on Google, how are they different? That's what I kind of wanted to know. And they really just didn't have the breakout sessions to really give you that perspective, which I think was really a missed opportunity because it's a sales conference as much as it is a technical conference. It's, it's supposed to be both. And it, it was very heavily weighted towards machine learning and Kubernetes and SRE. Like those are the three big things you could talk about all the time and in security compliance as well, um, where it's mixed in there as too. But that was really the big four threads of talks you could get to. And that was kind of it. It was more than just like, here's Kubernetes or a new feature of Kubernetes, or here is machine learning, or, you know, it was, it was a very, like the, it was AI for this very targeted workload. It's very specific. And so like, even if I'm interested in AI or machine learning or language processing or any of these things, it's still a very niche, the breakout was a very niche thing about either how one company did this one specific task or how you can achieve this one specific type of thing. Since I didn't go because most of those titles turned me off, I don't, maybe if I got in there and I could, I could sort of expand on, on how to use their platform. But what I really like about reInvent is when I go to those sessions and I'm like, oh, I can use this. I can incorporate this into my daily life and I can make this work for me. I can sort of, you know, daydream a little bit because of like, this is how I'm getting someone's reference architecture or I'm getting an overview of the feature set of the service where I didn't really seem to get that from the, the breakouts at GCP. Someone's rearranging furniture. Sorry, man. <laughs> I'm in an Airbnb. Uh, I'm in I'm in a wicker chair, and just every time I move at all, it, it crinkles and cracks, and I'm and all of a sudden my back gets sore, and I'm like, I, I gotta move, I gotta move. Uh, nice. <laughs> the big big question that I left GCP with that I have not been able to answer yet is if Google's big strategy seems to be Google Kubernetes service, AI, big data, and machine learning, and security. And that's the three big investment areas. That's what they're trying to deliver to you. And if I'm an enterprise customer, is that enough to make me want to move my workloads to GCP? And knowing enterprises that I've worked at and people I know and where they work, going to Kubernetes is a transformation that takes multiple years. Moving to machine learning and AI is all typically greenfield applications. Those aren't the things as an enterprise I really need right now. They're great like future states that I want to get to, but if I just need to move my data center to Google, they're not really they don't have a lot there to offer me. And I think that's probably the biggest risk they have from an enterprise perspective is how do they meet these enterprise customers with what they need today versus what they could give them in the future, which is really compelling, but if you don't meet me today, I don't want to get to your future state because I can't get there. I think that it's clear that what they're doing, although they're trying to increase their service portfolio across the board to make it possible for an enterprise with complex, multiple different types of workloads to go all in on Google. Like that's their long-term goal and they're working on it. But at GCP Next, the strategy is uh, lead with your best punch, lead with the areas you're strongest in. And, and I get that. And I, I definitely think those are fantastic strengths. And I think you should be leading with those. But 
you still got to have my, you know, Windows 2003 server that I need to be able to move to GCP. I still need to be able to do that. You can't help me there. I can't move my workload. And I think you can. Like, they have a compute workload that you can run. And I, they are leveraging, like, you know, their their AD connector service that they announced. You know, they are making inroads there. So it's just interesting. It's, it's more of the developer productivity things that I find missing. You know, like, it seems a workload more suited to something if I'm going to build it all myself. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deploy my own Elasticsearch and manage that. I'm going to, you know, have my own cache layer. I'm going to have all that. I'm not going to use these services that can be managed for me. Pre-Next, there was a few announcements kind of leading into the conference. These are the things that typically uh, were slated to be finished by Next, but, you know, weren't necessarily keynote worthy. And so the first one was they um, introduced five new compute instances and two new memory optimized instances. So this now allows you to get uh, either from four to 60 vCPUs and uh, 16 gigabytes, 240 gigs of memory and the new five, the five new compute instances. And if your app is memory constrained, uh, they have two new instances for you that either have 208 vCPUs or 416. And they offer you between 5.7 terabytes of RAM and 11 and a half terabytes for RAM. Wow. That is a big, big server. <laughs> Uh, interesting enough, they did not announce pricing on the memory instances because uh, telling you that it's going to cost you, you know, all of your children and your mortgage is probably not going to be acceptable to most people. It sort of hurts sales. <laughs> and the next announcement uh, was the new HealthCutler API. So uh, a few months ago, Azure actually announced something very similar to this. Uh, this is a FUR compliant API that allows you to move healthcare data in and out of the Google services, and particularly BigQuery and Dataflows and the cloud machining learning language. Um, it does provide you with support for HL7v2 applications, which are typically SaaS apps and clinical systems, as well as DICOM medical imaging metadata storage. Uh, they tie this into their cloud DLP solutions, which are actually really cool. Uh, so they can do all the de-identification of PHI data and automatically detect it and remove it from your system. And this was announced uh, the Sunday before Next, and then they announced about four hours later, McKesson's going <laughs> with Google as a strategic customer. So you know, very clearly set up to lead into the week of Google Next. Yeah, this is the this is the definition how to win new workloads. Yet really specific to an industry, completely remove the friction of getting the data there. We should be seeing. More more options like this across more verticals. Now, both Azure and Google have announced this first support. I, d I don't know if Amazon has. It's something, uh, if they haven't, clearly this is something that people are asking for, and I wouldn't be surprised to see at AWS uh, follow this lead. Let me adjust my tinfoil hat, but I, I am starting to get more nervous as we start putting all this data into these these large providers, and they're going to aggregate together. So it's it, this isn't more than just one health company managing this data and managing it on the cloud. This is going to be multiple healthcare companies all using a very a, a service, and that all that data is going to be available at some point to these larger companies. And so what they do with that data will become very important. Like how anonymized can they actually keep it? And then what kind of value can they extract out of it? Especially if you look at the pricing for this, like it's very low. They've made this very introductory. If you're a smaller healthcare provider that doesn't have a lot of transactions, the service is practically free. I just cannot wait for the day when I can walk into a new doctor's office and show them my ID and they have access to my medical history. I'm like tired of writing down the same stuff over and over and over again. And it's um, any, any way we can converge all that stuff or aggregate all that stuff into into a single place and give me the choice to share my data with whichever provider I happen to be using on a particular day, while still allowing somebody to have an overall view. Because I think the more data you have about somebody's health, the better service you're going to give them in the end. Bring it on. This is great. You'll, you'll have that service, and the next day your insurance premiums will go up just because you walk through that door. Possibly. I and mean, I think we have that now to some degree. 
very good. Healthcare is tied very much to how much you use it and your company's usage of healthcare. So yeah, <laughs> it isn't instantaneous, but it uh, it does happen at the renewal period. The uh, last pre-announcement that I thought was worthy of the show was a uh, Google Cloud Memory Store uh, now supports Redis 4.0 and some new manual failover API. So you can manually invoke failover between regions or availability zones inside the Google Cloud. Redis 4 adds uh, new caching improvements with the new least frequently used algorithms and, of course, active memory defragmentation. The funniest thing in this announcement was the uh, active memory defragmentation. Redis can now defragment memory while online. This helps with actively reclaiming me- unused memory which prevents unnecessary crashes. It doesn't prevent all the necessary crashes, but just the unnecessary ones. You can tell that the, the product announcement was written by uh, not a marketing person, but probably a tech person. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. All right, well, let's move on to announcements from Next itself. So uh, Sundar started off the keynote with announcement of Google Anthos is now GA'd. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in our debate on the draft, uh, this is a rebranding of what they announced last year, which was the Google uh, Cloud Service Provider uh, service. It's a collection of GKE on-premises, Istio for networking, a new Anthos config management tool for automatic policy and security at scale across GKE clusters. It's tightly integrated into Apigee and native for serverless, and also all of the building tools, the Velostrat migration utilities, as well as Stackdriver for all your monitoring. The big thing that they talked about, without trying to say the vendor or cloud's name, uh, they were very big to highlight that you can run GKE now on any cloud provider, be that AWS, Azure, or on-premises. So now this is the dream of multi-cloud with GKE given to you by Google. Yeah, so who wants portability? Not the guy in first place. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the pricing. I did find it funny how much of a struggle it was not to say any of the other cloud providers' name. And then they very quickly highlighted in a demo that they're running, that they're pointing at an AWS instance in the host name. Like, eh, it's kind of strange. Showing a host name in a DNS URL is, is one thing, you know, versus, you know, Larry Ellison mentioning Amazon, you know, 100 plus times in the keynote at Oracle World. So I, I applaud their restraint from trying to name other clouds in this particular keynote. But they did mention on day two, Google had the least number of downtime minutes of any cloud provider, uh, which was a bit, you know, of a lie. Uh, because while Amazon had more downtime by a couple hundred minutes, uh, none of them had a full global outage like Google did. There's some clever math at play. To come up with oh, those numbers. For sure. And I would love to see the source data and how they actually aggregated those numbers across. Because it is sort of like, eh, it seems maybe a little biased. It was definitely biased. If you don't run any services, can you claim 100% uptime better than any other provider? I don't know. My uptime is fantastic. You don't run any services, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so Jonathan, you mentioned the pricing. Do you want to talk about the pricing of the service? The pricing, yeah. From from the from the day Kurian was announced uh, uh, CEO of GCP, I was kind of wondering, like, is he is he being planted there by Oracle? Is it a, you know, <laughs> is there some kind of conspiracy going on here? What's what's going to happen? Where's the Oracle influence going to be on uh, GCP? And we found it in uh, the Anthos pricing because the enterprise pricing for this is outrageous: 10k a month, um, uh, and it's priced in bundles of 100 vCPUs. There's no free tier for 10k a month. It's also a 12-month commitment, so it's not just like I can turn this on today, try it out for a month, and I I just paid tenth of or twelfth of that price. It's 
you're paying 10,000 a month, it's 120,000 a year, no matter what you do. And if you go to 101 or 102 vCPUs, now you had to buy a whole nother bundle. So now you're at 240,000 because you went over that threshold a little bit. Now they say that they're, they won't turn anything off when you go over that 100 vCPUs, but that they will notify your salesperson who will reach out to you to adjust your licensing as appropriate. I'm sure they will. Yeah, it seems an anti-pattern to a lot of cloud practice and crowd building. Like, you know, the whole, a lot of the advantage to moving to one of these hyperscalers is that I only pay for what I'm using at the time. And so to, to have this level of commitment, like I get committing to get a price break. That's a different story. This is, this is a commitment to a service. You know, I have to commit for the entire year and I have to extract that value. And it's from a business perspective, it's confining and I don't want that. Yeah, it's a bit of a barrier of entry to, to even try the thing. 12K to turn it on for five minutes to see how it goes. Yeah, no, I'm assuming that if you have a salesperson, if, if you're lucky enough to have a salesperson at least. If you don't have a salesperson today, they announced that their go-to-market strategy is being beefed up in big ways with lots of salespeople, lots of essays being hired as fast as they can. So if you don't have a person now, you will very soon <laughs> because they want to have that enterprise relationship with you. So the next announcement was a uh, cloud run, uh, which was actually not a keynote announcement. It was announced, uh, Shadow announced during the keynote. Uh, but this is a fully managed serverless execution environment with containers. Um, so it's basically Lambda, but with Fargate as the as the engine behind the door. Uh, if you're familiar with AWS tools. And this can be run on top of your existing GKE clusters, or it can natively launch its own uh, Kubernetes nodes to handle your load. It does leverage native APIs, uh, the, the K-native APIs, to be clear, uh, to bring the serverless developer experience to you and the portability that you expect from both your Kubernetes clusters as well as now to your Lambda containers. Uh, this also included an open sourcing of the functions framework and new updates for all of the current runtimes, uh, including Node.js 8, Python 3.7, Go 1.11, Node.js 10, Java 8, Ruby 2.5, and Java 11 are now all in alpha or beta stage. Uh, so you can now use those, which is what uh, Jonathan was arguing about earlier. Was. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty neat. I guess this is, this is kind of what, this is the, the Kubernetes equivalent of what Amazon were doing with um, Firecracker. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit more fully baked than Firecracker is, at least in this first version of what Firecracker is. And so, you know, interesting, Kelsey Hightower, someone was tweeting about it, and he, he reached out and said, you know, don't really think about this as an event-based system. This is not events. This is containers. And so keep that in mind as you kind of move forward with this project as well. They're, they see functions slightly differently than Amazon sees functions. Yeah, I saw this much more as like a, a batch process, a, like a batch task in Fargate than, than I actually saw this as true, like serverless Lambda type of thing, which is great when you need that functionality because, you know, as anyone who's developed Lambda functions, it, and you, once it gets to a certain level of complexity, it can be challenging to create that function and maintain that function. But And so containers are, because they're so portable or much easier to maintain, you can do a lot more, well, there's a lot more flexibility inherent in them. So it is kind of a neat offering where you can do both. On the scale of serverless to you know, servers, that there should be kind of another axis of that whole that whole thing, kind of like the, uh, the magic quadrant. Sure, I don't have to manage the servers exactly, but I, I still do have to now rebuild my containers every time this OS patches. Whereas with um, with, you know, with, with the Amazon-style Lambda functions, I just provide the code and they manage the container. So Google has quite a few tools to keep your containers compliant, uh, you know, automated building processes, as well as uh, in the and we'll get to the security section later. We'll talk about some of their new security tools around containers. You know things like runtime uh, filtering and and binary executable allowances. 
to you know runtime filtering of vulnerabilities they have a bunch of stuff in containers are doing and automation they built to help you uh, simplify that build process i remember a couple of episodes ago we talked about the uh, the, the google were actually providing managed base images as well which, which kind of help, yeah. helps the whole thing you are still managing a config of effectively an os though whereas you're not you with are. lambda which is a i, get, I agree a definitely a less uh less abstraction more work, more customizability. So Google's next announcement uh, was their battle. They're they're joining the battle over open source monetization. <laughs> so this is the new fully managed open source partnership. Uh, so they announced a strategic partnership with Confluent, Datastax, Elastix, uh, InfluxDB, MongoDB, Neo4j, and Redis Labs to now provide a fully managed service for these partners to couple. GCP into a single user experience across management, billing, and support. Uh, and so this is basically their belief that you know Google's always had a strong commitment to open source and the open cloud, and that they believe open source is the future of public cloud. It's foundational and why they announced projects like Kubernetes, TensorFlow, and Go in the past, and supporting open source is part of their core tenants. So this is, uh, they're, they're going exactly the opposite way as our friends at uh, Amazon are. And basically making this partnership where this is all fully integrated and tightly coupled. So a uh, nice move by Google. I think it's uh, interesting. Peter hit the nail on the head last week with this, where, where it's these are all things which are heavily compute-based. And Google are going to get their money one way or another with people running these services on their platform. So they don't care. Uh, it's not necessarily whether or not you support open source. I think Amazon will also say that they're heavily supporting open source. But it's more around how you plan to go to market with companies that have and you know that are built around an open source or open core model uh, so do you believe in partnering with a company to manage the uh you know that service and maybe do a rev share uh, on top of your platform or do you want to offer a pure open source version and and completely control that offering yourself one of the ways that you catch up when you're the third entry into the market on cloud, right, and you're you know you're several years behind, is you do this partnerships and you say, look, we're going to partner with NetApp, we're going to partner with Elastifile, we mentioned last week, you're going to partner with Confluent, and that's all great until you know they're basically a monopoly and there's no pricing available, you know, there's no way for you to manage pricing, and when your customers are saying to you, we love this service but it's too expensive, so we're not going to use it which is what's going to eventually happen with some of these services, Google doesn't have their choice because they're not investing in these technologies like Amazon is. So now Amazon you know, is making them angry in different ways, but Amazon's saying, hey, our customers want these features. They don't want to pay for them in the way that you want them. So we're just taking the open source component and we're making it into a service that we can now, you know, the customers can use because that's what they're asking for and we're trying to meet our customers' needs where Google's saying, we don't really care about that. We just want to have this product functionality. If it if it's a win-win for both of us, the partner, then great. And you know, it's now fully embedded into our portal. And now there's all everything's there for you to take out of the box and just pay for however Confluent or Datastax or Elastic wants to charge you for it. Yeah, but they're still gonna have to compete with the Amazon offering. Confluent, Datastax, Mago, those guys are gonna have to compete with the aggregate pricing. So they're still gonna be pressured to lower their prices to be competitive with the Amazon offering. So I think it, I think Google's in pretty good shape here. I mean, unless... No, no, I, I definitely the, think yeah. Google's in good shape. I just, I don't know how how great this actually is for some of these cloud providers or these open source providers. Right. Now, they should be pressured to lower prices to, to their value add level. The other question that came to my mind is, what's the security look like on this, right? So I, I have a fully managed service that Google's now offering to me from Elasticsearch. 
is that a special version of Elasticsearch that Google signed off on because now they're sort of responsible for some of the shared security model? Is that data still living in my account? Is it transitioning to a different account that Elasticsearch has? Where does the data reside? There's a bunch of questions they didn't really answer in this offering. And you know, in the Amazon marketplace or in the, even in the Azure marketplace, when you pick, you pick up these products, they're AMIs and instances that you run in your account typically when you take a offer, marketplace offering. So you know where the data is. You know how it works. And they just didn't explain any of that on stage, which I felt was a missed opportunity. They did talk about the support model being a single point of contact for support. So if you think about, they did, yes. if they think about that, it has to be a gated version because you're training an entire support staff for you know Google in order to have to support these elastic clusters or these MongoDB clusters. And so to keep all those SAP SOPs in order and all these things, like there is going to be a certain level of gate. And I wonder how fast they'll be able to keep up with that. It could be a, quite a challenge. Yeah. I think it's going to turn into buying Red Hat on AWS. They're, those companies are going to develop their features that are quote unquote value add. They're going to get a rev share, a small rev share cut based on that. And otherwise, it's going to be a Google support uh, managed service. Enterprise databases managed for you uh, with enhancements and a new engine. So first of all, they announced uh, Postgres SQL 11 support and a new big table multi-region replication feature. And then the big announcement was uh, Microsoft SQL Server is now going to be a first class citizen of Cloud SQL. Fully managed SQL Server backups, tuning. Uh, all the things that you would expect from uh, a managed database with SQL Server. Uh, you can BYOL your licensing from Microsoft, or you can buy the licensing through Google directly. This is a smart play for them to, for adopting you know, enterprise. I think there's a lot of Microsoft SQL out there, and I think it fits very nicely with their story with other Microsoft products as to be attractive for an enterprise audience. I mean, it's an obvious move, but it's a good move. Yeah, and it feeds into their their Windows story, right? You know, If you want to go after enterprises that are predominantly Windows, there's definitely a lot of SQL Server out there. Data is their business. That's what they're going with the big data and machine learning like crazy. So anything they can do to bring more people's data into their into their cloud um, is good for them. I am definitely not surprised. Well, it was in your honorable <laughs> mention. So <laughs> yeah, that one came up. I was like, oh, if you'd only put that in the draft, you would have been set. <laughs> I'm surprised it took so long. Actually, I mean, it's been a few years since Microsoft announced SQL Server on Linux. So I'm I'm kind of surprised it took them this long. I, I, you know, you only have so many resources on working on Google Cloud at any given time. You know, you gotta, you're, you're doing this major GKE features. You're doing a lot of stuff. Where do you, where do you spend your fine, your time and resources, right? And if, if before Thomas came, you know, Diane wasn't as interested in tackling that market, maybe that's the problem. So, you know, I, don't, I you know, while we know very well how Amazon does product feature road mapping and narratives and their their go to market process, because they've, they've been pretty open about it. I really don't know how Google's process works. I don't know if, you know, if customers' needs are really considered or not. It's an interesting question. I, you know, I have no idea how that works. BigQuery Business Intelligence Engine is the next announcement. Uh, this is a new in-memory analysis service for BigQuery to allow users to analyze large and complex data sets with sub-second query response time. And this enables real-time dashboarding over streaming or static data. Uh, it has automatic performance tuning and capacity flexibility and a ni really nice uh, BI report builder uh, that allows you to build these reports and design them with the graphs and the different data sets that you want to show. The BigQuery was so quick. We were using it to uh, analyze our AWS bills. <laughs> so this is... <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> just with Google Sheets on top, and it was super cool. And uh, yeah, that... Um, I can't wait for us to be able to use that 
uh, for more use cases. I want to try this. Yeah, in context, you can collaborate on up to 10 billion rows of data with BigQuery. 10 billion rows. That's that's an awful lot of data. Yeah, that's pretty That's an awful lot of data. <laughs> yeah, the, the conference was my introduction to BigQuery, and now I'm just daydreaming about use cases. I'm like, how can I use this? Because it was pretty slick. The the demos they showed, the amount of data it's anal- you know, analyzing and how fast it is. And then just, yeah, their integrations. Like, it's, it is sort of crazy, you, you know, putting this directly in Google Sheets, for instance, and just running a query and then outputting that output to your cell is, that's, kind of nuts it it really speaks to the power of these these big data the big data efforts because once it starts getting real people are interjecting it to their daily lives you start to see more of the benefit of it yeah that sheets feature was a really great demo in day two uh you know them basically tying google google sheets to a BigQuery table running this data visualizing it back out into excel which is a language a lot of people understand or google sheets version of excel excuse me uh you know it, it really clarified in my mind how g suite is such an enabler to google cloud for google and why it's such a big deal that these two products are together because there was some question of like why why is g suite part of google cloud and i think this is the clear answer is that once you link these two places together now you're meeting the users who use this data with the full power of their machine learning ai technology that really opens the doors and i can see why microsoft is sort of freaked out about that too because it's a big threat to office for sure and then you know you look at amazon's work docs te- technology and you can very clearly say that it's just not not the same level of service or capabilities as either of those two products and you see why they're trying to do it though because they do see it as a potential threat yeah, I don't think Amazon would ever integrate WorkDocs with something like Athena. I think they would now. <laughs> Maybe they would now. <laughs> hey, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this actually announcement really excited me. So they announced a Google Voice for G Suite. So now you can assign phone numbers uh, to your G Suite users. So they can now have a virtual phone number that they attach to their desk phone or to a mobile device. Um, or you can even buy telephones and integrate them into either your on-premise PBX or directly into Google over the Internet. Uh, so this is a now full-featured phone capability that ties into Hangouts Meets and calendars. Uh, it does have some auto-attendant features, support desks, phones, and the higher packages. And the top package includes advanced reporting with BigQuery as well. Uh, this is going to run you between $10 and $30 a month, uh, depending on what features you are looking for and what capabilities you want and how many numbers uh, you want to call, unlimited international, etc. Uh, but overall, I, I was most excited about this because I love Google Voice, and I always assumed Google Voice was on the chopping block to be killed like Google Reader any day. And, you know, the fact that it's now part of G Suite makes me think that it'll live a little while longer. Yeah, they made a few acquisitions over the years. I think even the original Google Voice technology was, was an acquisition. And it's taken a long time to, to turn this into a product. But this is, this is great now. This is great. Super excited about this one because it just means that the consumer version will get some love, hopefully. All right, new uh, storage features. Uh, multiple storage features got wrapped up into a single announcement. So they announced a new ice-cold archive storage, which will be coming soon. A new cloud file store has gone GA with a higher throughput. Uh, regional persistent disks will be going GA sometime next week. And then they have a new bucket policy and V4 signature support for cloud storage, which is now in beta, and new IAM roles for cloud storage transfer services. So overall, uh, quite a few enhancements to your Google storage uh, portfolio here. Did they announce pricing on the ice cold? Uh, I did not see pricing yet on the ice cold because it's still coming soon. Uh, Once it hits uh, alpha beta, I assume you'll see that pricing. That's the main feature of that type of storage is the price. It it is. I think it was a, 
hey, Amazon just announced this. We really should do something like that too. Start the product feature set with the price and then send the price to the engineers and tell them to come up with something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. All right. The next one here is Google Cloud is now the best place to run your Microsoft Windows apps. Uh, so now across the board, they will allow you to bring your own licenses uh, for SQL Server or for Windows uh, or any other Microsoft technology that they allow you to do uh, license portability with. Uh, they announced a new managed Active Directory service, which is uh, pretty fantastic. And then they uh, now have a new seamless migration services, uh, Volostrata, which is a migration tool for that now supports Windows. So you get a full set of Windows capabilities, very much targeted at enterprises uh, who have large Windows workloads. This is a really nice uh, enhancement to the overall G Cloud suite. Yeah, it's something they absolutely needed. It's about time that it's coming. There's just no way to have a cloud partner who can't support a bulk of your workloads. Uh, going back to the cold storage, they did actually add a price to the blog post after Ooh. I looked at it. So it is 0.0012 per gigabyte or $1.23 per terabyte per month. And what was the Amazon one was a dollar per terabyte per month, roughly? I believe roughly, yes. All right. So pretty close. That's 23% higher. Well, it's not just the storage cost. It's also the cost to get it out again when you're done. Yeah, but you're never going to yes. use it. Come on. That's uh, why you're putting it there. Because <laughs> you're contractually obligated to. That's yes. why. Yes, exactly. New cloud code IDE integrations have been announced. Uh, these are plugins for IntelliJ and VS Code. That brings automation and assistance to every phase of the development cycle. So it has a ability to attach directly to debuggers and GKE. Uh, you can tie directly into the cloud code tooling and cloud build software and stack driver. So uh, you know you're right there making a change to a configuration file or to a bit of line of code, and you hit commit, and it'll build it right there, deploy it, and off to the races you go. So uh, super tightly integrated IDE plugins uh, to help drive things forward ah, i'm really disappointed i didn't make this one with the draft predictions because with all the work microsoft's been doing on dev tools it made sense that the uh, vs code extensions were going to be uh featured you know i actually thought this was a web ide but then i found out later as i was reading the blog post that it was just plugins for existing ides but you know, considering the google chromebooks uh you would think that they would be all over a web-based ide as well yeah, because they, ha they have the cloud-based console that they use to interact with the Google Cloud. So it, it would make sense they at least have some sort of direction there. You'd need it. Well, I, I think what they've done is they just kind of they kind of pull in those IDE components where they need them in different UI patterns. And so they don't really need a unified IDE framework is the kind of thing how they see it. But I do, I do wish they would come out with something like a Cloud9 type solution. Until then, it, I mean, again, decrease the friction. Work, get into other people's uh, existing workflows. Uh, there are going to be new GCP regions in 2020, one in uh, Seoul, Korea, and the other one in Salt Lake City. Uh, apparently, Olympics locations are popular <laughs> uh, data center locations. So. Uh, both of these will have three availability zones when they launch sometime in 2020, and uh, always good to have more availability zones. This actually puts them now at three West Coast availability zones, uh, and they have several on the East Coast as well. So they they have a lot of coverage in the U.S. Uh, if you're using GCP. And Seoul and Salt Lake City now have something to do with their curling stadiums. <laughs> Very nice. population-wise, it makes sense to have a lot of data centers on this on the on the West Coast. Well, it's it's good because you have definitely population centers over here, as well as if you if you have a small user population in Asia that is not worthy of building out a whole infrastructure there, having them on the West Coast is a little bit better than having them on the East Coast. 
Apigee Hybrid API Management has been announced. This allows you to run your Apigee API Gateway runtime anywhere, uh, either in your data center or any of the public clouds of your choice. Uh, so this is a full-featured API management solution across all your environments. Uh, the customer-managed runtime plane for all API traffic it includes API design, security, publishing, analytics, and the developer portal. And it is a containerized deployment of the runtime, so it's super easy to run in any type of container runtime solution. Well, I could you run Apigee in, uh, on-premise before Google bought Apigee. <laughs> you could, you could, which is makes sense that they would now have this capability. But uh, it okay. is fully now managed into their, their backplane, right? So basically they... In Google Cloud, you control it, you manage it, you run it, you, know, you configure it all there, but then it runs wherever you need it to be. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and then they introduced the new traffic directory service uh, and several other network enhancements on top of that as well. Uh, this includes a new service mesh solution built on Envoy. <laughs> uh, so Envoy is apparently the winner in the service mesh space as Amazon and Google have now both adopted Envoy as their go-to uh, solution for this. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, it's currently in beta. Uh, you can deliver traffic workloads to where and when you want it. Uh, both attached to VMs and containerized workloads, and it's heavily integrated into Anthos as well. So pretty nice uh, little enhancement there if you're doing a lot of things in the network space. They also uh, added a new high-availability VPN solution that is 99.99% available, uh, and this can either be set up as active-active or active-passive, depending on what device you're attacking to and what it can support. And they now also can support up to 100 gigabits per second circuits for their dedicated interconnects, which is very similar to like a private link. Uh, and they also now allow private access over those interconnects to Google services like G Suite and BigQuery and all those things. So now that can all traverse your private backbone. I think Envoy was actually in my uh, prediction originally. It might have been. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to get those points back, aren't you, Peter? No, I already got the points. <laughs> yeah, you've already won. I just like to gloat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, you I know how many times Wait, I've uh, actually won the lightning round? Once. Once. Yeah, and I don't even think I won at that time, so I'm taking this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we did we did have Chris Short say that, you know, he didn't think it was fair that you were being you were being judged in the competition at all. Exactly. So uh, they also did, uh, sorry, I missed this one, but they announced uh, new network service tiers, uh, Premier and Standard. So Premier traffic allows you to allow all your traffic, regardless of region, to traverse the Google backbone. Or you can use the Standard tier, which exits the traffic at the region level, just like you are typically used to. Um, so it's really nice if you want to take advantage of all that sweet, sweet bandwidth that Google owns uh, to deliver your traffic to your users that much faster. That's going to be fun to see. Uh, I'm sure the next thing we're going to see is a bunch of smart people doing blog posts and doing some tests around it to see the difference in latency and throughput. Yeah, I, I would be curious to see yeah. that. Does, does having Envoy as being the service mesh of choice between different hyperscalers, is that, is that an advantage for people doing multi-cloud? We think that will be an opportunity to uh, service mesh between providers. Well, I assume you service mesh between Istio clusters. Is that how you would do that? So Istio is still under the hood of, or I mean Envoy is still under the hood on Istio. So it's oh, it? yeah, their okay. sidecar process is still Envoy based. So it, I mean, it's it just speaks to how these are all Envoy is the clear open source winner in this, and everyone's sort of building on it and moving in that direction. This is just kind of more managed for you, so that you don't have to do all the heavy lifting of of setting up this service and and having it all set in place. And it'll give you, I, I suspect, prescribed endpoints where you can tie in and provide the connectivity as well as the visibility of your services. 
And then on the uh, security front, several new features here. They uh, now are providing access transparency logs uh, and access approval logging in near real time. So they were saying that they would basically get you uh, logging of your APIs within four to five seconds of when the action happens. So compared to Amazon's CloudTrail logs, which can be up to four hours delay, um, that's a really fantastic product and feature that they released there. They have a uh, new DLP user interface uh, in beta, so allow you to dynamically configure DLP rules uh, for your user population, either in chat or in your application natively or different areas where you want to store data. Uh, this allows you to really focus on DLP without being a heavy-duty coder, and your uh, your you know your engineers and your compliance team who do that type of classification data can now use that simple user interface, which is super nice. This, so the, the trust through transparency, the access transparency for GCP is the... The one that I was talking about where they're actually going to log when GCP admins interact with your data for support purposes. So this is the, when we were talking a little. Oh, so they, so that's part of this yeah. as well. So this is, this is API logging when you use it, but as well as if, if Google yes. uses it. Oh, wow. Okay. I missed that in the, in the, in the announcements. That's, that's super cool. I actually really like that. These are all requirements for HIPAA. So if they want their, their, um, their health API to be uh, to be HIPAA compliant, then they need to have these controls in place. Oh, and the fact that it's near real time. I mean, if you think about using this as a trigger, like that's always the if you have to wait four hours for the the trigger to be you know trigger remediation or some sort of auto healing capability, like that's a little long time to, to be considered like you know self healing. So the near real time is is really interesting here because then you could actually probably stop a security exploit or something as it's happening rather than being reactive, even if it's an automated reaction. Yeah, fast enough to be useful. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so then still in the security space, they released uh, Cloud Security Command Center as GA now. They also added to it, uh, just to make it even better, uh, new event threat detection, security health analytics, and cloud security scanning, and Stackdriver incident response and management capabilities all coming uh, either in beta or coming very soon to the command center. So they are making a large investment in what they're doing in the security space uh, in visibility and SOC reporting. Uh, they also have now added container registry vulnerability scanning, binary authorization, uh, sandboxing, and managed SSL certificates for GKE and some Shield VM capabilities. Um, so containers are a big part of their strategy, of course, tied to very closely to GKE. And then several new G Suite enhancements around phishing and malware protections uh, and admin collaboration automation portals to allow it simpler uh, administration of your G Suite stuff. So overall, a lot of uh, security features coming out the door of Google this week, uh, which is really nice to see. Yeah, that container registry vulnerability scanning uh, is something that everybody wants. That's just an awesome. Oh, yeah, there's there's several players in that space, yep. right? You know, you have Twistlock and you have Aqua Security and a couple others. Um, so if this becomes a native function of your cloud provider, that puts some of those companies at yep. risk. All right, moving along. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time on this one because it's uh, all around data. But smart data analytics, uh, there's some new tooling for moving your SaaS app connectors to BigQuery, data warehouses to BigQuery, everything to data to BigQuery. How do you get it there faster? Use the new tooling. <laughs> uh, they have the new connected sheets, like we talked about earlier, which is the tight integration with sheets and the overall BigQuery engine. And so you can power all that complicated Excel logic that you were doing in VB now in Google Sheets or in uh, Google uh, BigQuery. And then they have turning data into predictions with new auto ML tables and BigQuery machine learning capabilities. 
um, to allow you to very rapidly detect and address predictions in your data models. That uh, Fusion Control Center looks really neat. It reminds me of the Azure uh, thing we reviewed a couple of weeks ago, where you, know, you can drag and drop um, basically like factories, data factories, and say what comes in, what goes out, and how the data gets transformed. So it looks, it looks kind of a similar. Obviously, all the providers are working on similar functionality, but this looks, uh, this looks really smooth. Yeah, one of the other cool things in the space was they announced a new cloud catalog for data discovery and governance. And so this is a pre-built category of you know known data sets that have been compromised. Oh. So you know email addresses, passwords, things like that that they have known about that you can now query. You can pipe into your DLP. You can pipe into your other query languages and use that data to identify not only identify data types, uh, but also identify data that's potentially dangerous or compromised in other areas. Yeah, it won't be long before personal information like dates of birth and social security numbers, they won't be considered uh, personal information anymore because they've been leaked so many times. That's going to be great. <laughs> I can't wait till mm-hmm. then. I don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, in the AI space, they released a competitor text tract called Document Understanding AI, which allows you to identify text objects inside documents or images and extract them as metadata components. Uh, a new contact center AI for your contact center use cases, and then uh, several new products for Google Cloud retail, including Vision Product Search uh, to do uh, image-based searches of products, recommendations AIs. If you have a large catalog and you want to make recommendations, you can now leverage all of that with Amazon or Google's out-of-the-box capabilities in the AI space. Um, which I don't know, actually know how I feel about them naming all these things AI, but you know, overall they're good. They're good products, good features. We're not really artificial intelligence. Uh, so then our, our final announcement for Google uh, GCP is uh, new collaboration capabilities in G Suite. So they announced a ton of stuff in G Suite. Uh, so now it uh, integrates with Google Assistant for your calendar. So you can now use Google Assistant on your mobile device to talk to your G Suite calendar. Uh, there's several new capabilities coming with G Suite add-ons now where they'll have a marketplace to add you know, third-party integrations into your G Suite p- capabilities. Uh, a new enterprise cloud search capability to make it easier to search your data in across your G Suite portfolio. Uh, and then Hangouts Meets uh, will now support live captioning, as well as a new public live streaming for events and increased meeting participants. So you're not capped at the, I think, 20 was the previous cap, or maybe 50. Uh, the Connected Sheets feature we talked about a few times on the show, and then the Google Voice we talked about. And then the new Hangouts Chat is now integrated with gmail and if you are using g suite you also now get the new currents which is the enterprise version of google plus which hopefully does not leak data like google plus was the game (laughs) (laughs) uh cheap shot yeah yeah i I had to to go there sorry (laughs) seems like some of these things were already available to people who were using calendar integration with the assistant that's been available to pretty much anybody but i guess it wasn't a uh, business ready product a lot of the features that end up in G Suite start out on the consumer side first, and then they get moved over to the enterprise side over time <laughs> as they mature, which makes sense. Is why why make all your enterprises unhappy when you can make your consumers unhappy? <laughs> well, they're not paying for it, so yeah, yeah, they're the you you are the product if you're the consumer side. Taking something you're offering for free and then starting to charge for it, it just seems like counterintuitive, but I, I get it. One of the big ones was uh, the announcement. I think one of the collaboration announcements is around um, being able to edit in uh g suite your excel and uh word docs oh in the same doc yeah so you can open it and you can edit it you don't have to download it or convert it first oh yeah if it's a word version right not a google sheet but it's actual 
you know, Excel file or Word file, you can now edit it directly. Right. And yeah, that actually is really cool. When I was in the transition period from my last company going from Office to G Suite, you'd upload that that Word doc and you go, I want to edit it, and then it'll make a second copy of it in the in the Sheets format or yeah. the Google Docs format. And then you have these like weird orphan documents all the time. So that is super nice, actually. Yep. And the formatting was never right. Tables were always messed up. It's all yeah. It's, it was it's a bit hit and miss. Well, I mean, let's not get excited about that. That's probably still broken. <laughs> <laughs> I think the live captioning is kind of interesting. I read recently that um, machine learning can uh, lip read better than people can anymore. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's an action-packed uh, set of uh, announcements. Most of these didn't make main stage. Most of these were, you know, things they announced either in sessions or on their Twitter feeds uh, or just in the blog posts. So uh, a lot of incremental features in a lot of different areas, several big features in a couple of key areas. And, and overall, I don't necessarily think it was at the same pace of innovation that I've seen from Asia or from Amazon at their events. But, you know, Thomas Curran's only been there 10 weeks. And if this is where we're at 10 weeks in and he can really impact that roadmap and really start delivering stuff, I think Google Next next year might be real interesting. Now we've reviewed all the, all the announcements, all the big announcements. Do, do we feel differently about Google Next this year? I mean, we're kind of, we seem to be down on it at the beginning of the show. Are we a bit happier now that we've reviewed things? My opinion still stands. I still think there's really great stuff in machine learning and in GKE and in the security space. I think that's all really strong. I think the G Suite stuff is really great. And if I was using G Suite, I would be really happy with those things. But overall, like innovation in the cloud space, uh, you know, doing things that enterprises really need and want, I just, I still, I still think they have a ways to go. For me, it's, I'm down on the conference. I'm not down on the GCP platform. Like I, I still think that they, they are really good contender to Amazon and Azure. Like, you know, like if I was evaluating my cloud workloads today, I would have to evaluate what what workloads I had. And in a lot of use cases, I think they would come up the winner there. But for me, it's more along the lines of, did the conference actually provide me value? Was my two days really worth it? And, you know, it was three days long and I, I opted not to go for that third day. What does that say? You know, that's sort of, that's sort of how I feel about that. I don't think anything's changed from my perspective, but I definitely think they have got strengths where if companies aren't afraid to have different workloads on different clouds, um, if you're evaluating on a workload by workload basis, there's some really strong points on GCP. It's just they're not there yet to where they can be all things to a complex enterprise. So a complex enterprise can't go all in, close down all their data centers, move everything to GCP. If I was a startup and you know, or a very heavily containerized workload, I would, they're a serious contender in that space. I, you know, you just can't argue with what they're doing in Kubernetes and, and for the startups that would use this. I mean, I can see why Spotify made the pivot to these guys. It, it makes sense to me based on what the capabilities are and what, where Spotify is, right? They're relatively young company. They were born very early in the container era. They adopted containers very quickly. They have a ton of big data machine learning capabilities that they use. It just makes sense. And I think um, this is what we're seeing is that, you know, startups in particular are going to probably be the big adopter of Google Cloud in the next, you know, year or so. And if these enterprise features start getting better and better, then, you know, it becomes a contender to enterprise more and more every month that goes forward from here. Especially for the enterprise uh, transformed apps. So you look at what the enterprise is doing to transform their apps to make them more cloud native, and it looks a lot like what Google supports. Yeah. 
we've talked about multi-cloud and people have been concerned about vendor locking and that's why they that's why they've gone multi-cloud i think i think what i've what i've learned from product announcements in next is that there's another reason to go multi-cloud and that's clearly uh, that the vendors are differentiating themselves in the services they're going to provide google is way ahead of the game in machine learning i mean look at the size of the instances 400 vcpus and terabytes of ram you just can't get that anywhere else um, so, yeah, I mean, I think um, I see multi-cloud being a more important thing, but not for the reasons we used to think. Thomas Curry talked about his first 10 weeks at Google were a lot of customer meetings and listening to what customers wanted and basically came back and said, you know, customers want multi-cloud. And I'm like, people who want multi-cloud are typically in two camps. One, they pick the wrong cloud and they're moving to the right cloud as fast as possible. Or they have looked at best of breed solutions in the right cloud and they pick the right cloud for the solution they want. And that's where the real success stories are in multi-cloud. They think they do. But when you get into the complexities of what's the there i just don't see it and if and if there's a listener of ours out there who is doing multi-cloud that's not just best of breed and they're actually doing web and database workloads across multiple clouds in a single application i would love to talk to you because i just have never seen it it's a unicorn that doesn't exist in my opinion everyone says it exists and i've never seen it and i've been in this business for a long time I think everyone just wants the answer to like, what do you do if Amazon hikes their prices? Like, what do you do if they just discontinue a service? Everyone wants that answer. So that's why the multi-cloud conversation starts. But that's not the reality that we live in. Like Amazon wants to retain us as customers. They're not, that's how they make their money. They're not going to just all of a sudden say like, no more DynamoDB, it's too expensive. And that argument to me is purely driven out of someone who's an on-premise person who doesn't want to move to the cloud. They're spreading FUD around their company and they're selling their CIO, you know, if we go to Amazon and they raise their prices, we're going to be screwed or, you know, we're going to lose a bunch of people who are data center people who aren't going to have a job anymore. And, and, you know, so that then turns into a CIO who, you know, or a CTO who maybe doesn't fully understand this and, you know, listen to that FUD and now they're saying, well, I need a multi-cloud solution if I'm going to go to the cloud. So until I have a multi-cloud solution, that's my barrier to going to cloud. And that's, that's a wrong answer. And often these people are the people who've, who've been with Equinix or Centrelink or whoever as a data center provider and only had one data center provider. So it's sort of a, it's a bit, a bit of uh, hypocrisy going on there. But, but the, the way I think about this is Google have been around for 20 years. And that they started managing huge amounts of data. Their business has been data all along. So it makes sense that, that uh, big data and AI and machine learning is, is where they're heading as a company. Amazon didn't come from that. Amazon came from retail and uh, consumer services. So it makes sense that they have a slightly different take on the services they're going to provide. And, and Microsoft is your same thing. You know, they've been establishment computing for, for 25 or 30 years. They come at the whole thing from a different place too. So... I think multi-cloud will certainly take on a new meaning. I, yeah, yeah and fr- from what I see is, you know, you look at central IT departments of large corporations, and it's not a it's not a choice for them. Um, oftentimes, it's a requirement to support these clouds because their company actually looks more like a mutual fund than a single driven organization. There's so many business units and so many departments with so many competing interests. And the company can't block those people from um, leveraging the best tool for them to reach their goals, and they don't want to. And so they know they have to open the door here. Otherwise, you can have a bunch of people with credit cards everywhere um, or negotiating their own MSAs. And um, I think that's where multi-cloud really comes in is that these larger organizations are going to have to support, get, give access to those platforms to all of their businesses. Overall, I think it was a good conference. I think I have a different perspective on them than I did before. And, and I'm super excited to see where they get to in the next 12 months. Yeah, me too. Here, here. 
We are not covering anyone else this week because it's Google Next was a full show. Next week, we will catch up on the news we missed from this week. We have the lightning round back, of course, next week, and we will catch up on everything that's happening in Azure and AWS. Is there anything else that's happened from Google uh, since we recorded here tonight on Thursday? So thank you again all for coming. Thank you to Ryan, our judge uh, and jury and executioner for the draft uh, decision there. I think it was a fair choice. And uh, where can they find you if they're looking to follow your wit and insights? Um, I am available on most social media platforms on Ryron01. Um, you have to say it that way. It's not how it's spelled. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing back from you. And thank you so much for having on. And, you know, I'm really glad that I could facilitate Peter with this win. I, th- <laughs> I think he needed it. The check's yeah, in the mail. Yeah. Don't say anything. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Audible.com. Subscribe today on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod. Mm-hmm.